Before we begin, it should be emphasized to the fullest extent that the content of this podcast in no way represents the thoughts and opinions of the U.S. government or Peace Corps Uganda. That said, let's get started. Welcome, and thank you for downloading the first episode of Africa's Pearl, the podcast that explores the current story of Uganda's economic development. My name is Dominic Combs. Given that this is the first episode, I want to briefly explain the name, why the podcast is about Uganda, and highlight the objective of this podcast. First, in the year 1908, Winston Churchill said, and I quote, for magnificence, for variety of form and color, for profusion of brilliant life, bird, insect, reptile, beast, for vast scale, Uganda is truly the Pearl of Africa. Now, I didn't name the show Africa's Pearl simply because Churchill said those things. I named it Africa's Pearl because that happens to be an accurate description of the country. The soil is rich, the people are the most loving, and the culture is always dancing to the most vibrant tune. As a result, naming the podcast Africa's Pearl seemed to be more than suitable. As for why the show is all about Uganda, I am currently a Peace Corps volunteer serving in the central region of Uganda, specifically in the southwest, about 65 miles from the border to Tanzania. For the next two years, I will be teaching English, nutrition, and financial literacy. In addition, I will facilitate village savings and loan association groups, otherwise known as BSLAs. The show will also feature many guests so we can get a wide range of perspectives on Uganda's current development situation. As for the objective of the show, I want it to function as a vehicle that can allow us to go places where we can attempt to better understand development in Uganda. Because, in the end, development is not one thing. It is a process that requires countless moving parts from every direction. Health, education, nutrition, financial literacy, transportation, property rights, inclusive institutions, and much more. It is the yearning to understand people and immerse yourself into a different culture, the will to be humble, always, and most important, I think, is the internalization that development has not and will never be sexy. Many have attempted to find a magic key that will unlock developing countries and allow them to become places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, the United States, South Korea, Norway, etc. This will almost never be the case, given the variety of differences that exist between each country. Thus, the only way forward is through gradual progress, a riveting respect for each country in regards to its language, culture, religion, history, and politics. Economic development is difficult to define, for it is the process by which we gain freedom and obtain the highest form of flourishing possible for ourselves, our community, and our environment. However, if we are to make an attempt to describe what economic development is, might we follow closely behind the words of the Nobel laureate Amartya Sen when he said, quote, Development, fundamentally, is not about the things someone has or the feelings these things create. Rather, it is about what someone is and can be and does and can do. All right, so like I mentioned in the first, uh, in the intro of the podcast, uh, we're going to have many guests on the show. And so uh, we're going to start off this first episode actually talking to three uh, guests, other volunteers that are here in Uganda. 
Uh, so let me take a moment to introduce each one. Uh, our first guest is, um, is uh, Lubega Thomas Charles Nance. Uh, he was born in Germany. He got his bachelor's degree in health sciences from Furman University in South Carolina. He got a master's in public health from Melbourne University in Australia. He's also done health projects in India and Bermuda, helping people access uh, different oral hydration supplements. He promoted HIV awareness, and he's also done a lot of work with youth as well. Um, so, Tom, welcome to the first episode of Africa's Pearl. Thanks, Tom. I'm honored to be here. Uh, my second guest is, uh, is Maya. Uh, she was born in Michigan. She went to Indiana University where she got a bachelor's degree in um, uh, information, uh, informatics of sorts. Um, and she also played D1 soccer there and was the captain of her soccer team. Uh, and she worked for the, um, the Aspiris Foundation, am I saying that right? Aspiris. Aspiris Foundation, where they sent lots of um, soccer supplies to the Dominican Republic for children. Um, so yeah, welcome Mai to the first episode of Africa's Pearl. Thanks for having me. And the third and final guest that we have is, uh, is Andrew. Oh my god, he's just fantastic. Uh, so Andrew was born in, uh, in Indiana. Uh, he went to Purdue University where he got a bachelor's degree in animal science. Uh, and he's also um, did a study abroad in Zambia for three months? One month, one month, might be, might be on that. All right, so, um, so yeah, welcome, Andrew, to the first episode of Africa's Pearl. Thank you. We're gonna have to lean in a little bit to that guy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, well, thanks everyone for being here. Um, I want to, uh, there's quite a bit to go over in the beginning here, but I wanna start by just asking if everyone could sort of rewind for about three months and think about when you first arrived, and I'll start with Maya on this one. Um, what was some of the first sort of stark moments uh, that you faced when you, when you first got to Uganda? Hmm. Um, I remember the first moment that I was like in shock. We were on our way from the airport to our, our like um, facility we were gonna stay at and there were just like children circling um, the bus trying to sell us things and oh. there was <laughs> yeah. there was like a four-year-old trying to sell me something and she had probably like a three-week-old baby on her back and that was the first moment where I was just like kind of facing cultural shock um, and that was I don't know that's when I was like wow I'm in I'm really in Uganda this is gonna be a big lifestyle change a big cultural change um, but so that was one of my first impressions yeah, for me, I was talking to Tom about this earlier, and uh, we were driving, uh, and I was just sort of gazing out at the scenery, and then there were some houses that were sort of lined along the side of this hill, and someone looked at me and said, yeah, if it rains hard enough, those houses will go away. And I was like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? And they were like, oh, like, there's, like, there's like mudslides, and so yeah. if it rains hard enough, those houses that are right on the side just won't be there anymore. And you're not used to hearing about the rain making houses go away most right. of the time. Uh, but uh, Tom, how about how about you? What was your first impression? Yeah, um, my first impression was the same instance as my actually just more so because also the children like opened up the windows of the buses and I was kind of like, what? What do you? You can't open up my window. Yeah. But yeah, it was just like there were definitely some stark differences 
simply on like the bus ride from the airport to our training facility and yeah that was a big one too it's the same one but I think also there's like a sense of euphoria when you first arrive because you are in Africa and it is also stunningly like beautiful the nature and um so I don't know it's it's crazy because you see kind of a like immense poverty but it's on like the background of just like this really beautiful setting too yeah. so there's also this euphoria when you first arrive Andrew how about you um I think because I was in Zambia for a month I didn't it was enough of a taste of well it didn't look that much like Uganda but there wasn't much culture shock originally just um looking at the bus it looked the same as what I'd seen before just more densely populated yeah um and then we just went to Mizardi, so yeah. there wasn't really culture shock there either. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe when we went to Kaiyunga, there was a little bit, but mm-hmm. I don't think I felt any until I started living in a house with Ugandans. Yeah, it really. So we, um, so once we got to Uganda, we first spent was it five weeks, right? Yeah. Uh, at Mazardi? Three weeks. Or, oh, yeah, three weeks. It was three only weeks. three weeks? So yeah. like, <laughs> five weeks. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so, man, I'm off on that. But, uh, so we spent our first little while at Mazardi, and that was sort of our first post where we trained. And but the, and we were, in a way, Mazardi was a type of, it sheltered us still quite a bit, I think, from a lot of things. And then the first, so if we could, <laughs> like, I was talk, like I was talking to Tom earlier, it's like, uh, it, I just want to, if we could fast forward through maybe most of our uh, pre-service training, because that was just kind of a drag to me a little bit. <laughs> but um, it wasn't, the cultural stuff is really important. And, but it was just a lot of sessions and a lot of training. And, but I think more of the um, uh, stuff that might be more interesting to listeners is uh, maybe when we, if we could fast forward to when we got to our first homestay situations during language training. And um, could you talk about some of the, um, some of the acute struggles you had when you first arrived at uh, sort of first homestay in Kayunga, where we were at, yeah. Okay, so I lived with a mom and two um, of her daughters, neither of which were actually biologically related at all. Um, but I guess a funny thing, the very first night I was there, they at every meal they would put a bucket of water at my feet, and I thought, it was to wash my feet, so before every meal, I took a bucket, <laughs> no. and, I, and I grabbed the bar of soap, and I was just washing my feet. Was and it for your... It was for my hands, yeah. and I talked, so the next day, I talked That's to my, amazing. I talked to the teachers, and I said, what is up with this? Like, why, why am I washing my feet before every meal? Because this is just making my hands dirty. Yeah. And uh, they're like, and they were just like, I've never heard of that. So, turns out it was for my hands, but, you know, that's just like an example of one of the thousands of miscommunications that happened throughout that time. Um, But, overall, like, it was, I didn't face too many challenges. I mean, one thing I think everyone faced was, like, uh, the overwhelming amount of food that they fed me, um, and the lack of choice I had, really, in eating it, because I wanted to be respectful. Um, and then, you know, a lack of personal space too, just because there weren't any, um, ceilings on the walls and they kind of just always wanted to be around us. So I loved them, but it's hard to not have personal space. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The thing for me was, um, when women would kneel, 
when I first arrived and the, the gals that I was living with, they shook my hand and got on their knees and I was just like, I was like, oh man, what is, because even in, at Mazzardi, that had never happened to me before. And so when I got to my homestand, Cayunga, I quite literally didn't know what was happening. I was like, well, I don't know why, what, am I supposed to do something? Do I, <laughs> do I, do I, uh, is there a gesture I'm supposed to do? But, uh, but it's just for uh, more traditionally sort of uh, minded folks, like that's sort of what, how you, how you do it when you meet people that you don't know, uh, you kneel when you meet them. Right. But Tom, how about, how about you? Um, so Maya and I have discussed previously about like, like personal space was like a thing, um, or like privacy. Uh, so for mine also it was like we didn't have ceilings above each of the rooms so like noise always carried um, and at my home we had a lot of little children so they always wanted to like be with me or like on top of me or like near me and like it's adorable at first but then after like hour four you're like oh my god I'm gonna die and like <laughs> I, and I, so that also like kind of led, led into like be, no, I wasn't ever really in control of my person like a lot of my sanitation like cleanliness in the sense that like I didn't even have the option to wash my feet all the time <laughs> we didn't have like a place to wash our hands or um it just was like different priorities for my family and then because the children were always on me I feel like I got was getting sick sometimes just because I was my body was adjusting and I was still getting used to some of the germs and, yeah but um but on the flip side of that like I got the chance to live with like a really big Ugandan family and they were like religiously diverse and it was a good experience to like be introduced to the food and like be introduced to like pit latrines and like start to like understand like timing of stuff like stuff like class is supposed to start at eight but it's raining so okay you can go at nine I had like it was like yeah I had a really good experience both there were like heads and tails positive and negatives but overall really good experience could you comment a little bit on the religious diversity in the household because that's something that especially i think americans won't necessarily identify a lot with so uh one of the biggest surprises for me coming to uganda was how religiously diverse uh as a country that it is um specifically during language training in kayunga my host family um the head of the household was my host mom and she practiced islam with like um, one, two, three, four of the members. And then I had two host siblings who were Catholic. And then my the one that's closest to my age, he was Protestant. And this was all in like one house. Yeah. And so it was really cool to have that different diversity and like see how that was respected and how everyone was pretty fluid um, and allowed, ev- like everyone could go to their place of worship on the like respective day and it, there was never any conflict. It was it was really cool. Yeah, because the the folks at my homestay in Kanga were half of them were were uh, Baptist and the other half were cat uh, Muslim. Mm. Um, oh really? So, yeah, it was very. I they're all Muslim. It was such a no. My I thought they were in the beginning, but I yeah. found out that just my sisters were, uh, but then my brothers were Baptist, and so it was like a, it, it was really um, it was really strange to because that type of. And how seemingly okay everyone was with it. Like there wasn't any weird like hostility. And like Tom, uh, you were telling me a few days ago about how sometimes there might be one person in a family that strays away from like the the family um, tradition or yeah the family mm-hmm. majority of a religion. But it's like half of a family would be one religion and the other half is a different one. Mm-hmm. And so that was 
definitely like you I never met a family like in America that's that's that way mm -hmm. um, but yeah Andrew what, what was it for you uh, my homestay family was for the most part one man and four women no small children um, they were Catholic uh, the first culture shock I think I had in Uganda was no privacy at the homestay because there were no ceilings. It felt like there was no privacy. Um, I went for a run with my homestay brother and you're just greeting people the whole time and they're screaming Mazungu and Moo China and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I stopped running after that. I just started exercising <laughs> in my room. Um, yeah. That was like the first time that Uganda started to get to me a little bit. Could you guys describe for a moment, uh, for people that might not know, what uh, what we mean when we say Mazungu? So isn't it basically gringo? It yeah, it's yeah. just like um, it can mean like white person, European, foreigner. foreigner. Yeah, I think yeah. it's just foreigner. It, okay. It's being misconstrued a bit. Yeah. It's supposed to translate to foreigner. Yeah. But basically, when you go outside, it's it's constantly being yelled at you by even. Adults sometimes, I mean, mostly by kids, but adults don't shy away from and they saying don't, that. They don't yell at once, they all yell at 12 times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it can get to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Especially when you introduce yourself and then people still call you Mazungu. Then you flick them in the air. That's <laughs> 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 you tell them. Yeah, but um, Andrew, could you comment about uh, your experience with, uh, could you tell us about uh, night buckets and tell us about your experience with that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> would you mind uh, walking us through that? A yeah. Bit? Um, I felt like a hostage in Cayuga. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Cut that out. I was... I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it out of Cayuga, but my homestay family was really nice, but... Uh, it was five, we were there for five weeks, and maybe like ten days in, I got a stomachache, like all day, and then the diarrhea came the next day, and it didn't leave for three or four weeks. Um... I told myself I'm I was. So sorry, I'm <laughs> We all got night buckets, I'm and I, we all got night buckets, and I told myself I was never gonna do a long call. Well, could you could you bucket. describe like what is the purpose of a night bucket? A night bucket so... is basically for like at, in the middle of the night if you have to go to the bathroom, it's not always safe to go outside um, if you don't have a closed compound. So if you go outside, you're gonna have to wake someone up, and they're gonna have to go with you. So the first like. Maybe week, 10 days that I had diarrhea, I would do that, but it was a little bit exhausting three or four times a night having someone go outside yeah. with me. And I told myself I'd never use the night bucket for that. And like a week later, it was the most natural thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's really awkward when you do that and then you hear people snoring in your house and you hear them stop snoring. Um, <laughs> and then in the morning everyone's asking you how your stomach's feeling. Yeah, yeah. But you really stop caring. I just, it actually broke me a little bit. Yeah. I don't care anymore um, about that. St I would do that, I would do that again if I had to. I, it really doesn't bother me yeah, anymore. Yeah. It really like expanded my comfort zone, I'd say. Yeah, um, no, I, I gained a tremendous, I mean, I, I wanted to sympathize with you the whole time, but it was hard to because I just hadn't experienced that. And um, but just like in the last week, I had sort of a, a, a not so great spell of diarrhea, and it's 
And it's it was so bad that I <laughs> that like and it was just the extent that you know when people are talking about living in with a family and there's the the ceilings or the walls aren't even connected fully you can hear everything that's happening and just how loud it is sometimes and like going in a night bucket oh, like like you know uh, that just you were describing that to me at in Cayuga during language training and I was like man that sounds bad but I just. I had no idea what, um, how sort of painful that, that must have been until last week, but, but yeah. Yeah, it sucks. I left that night bucket in Kayunga. I don't have one anymore. Yeah. I'm not yeah. doing it anymore. I would have left it too. Yeah, don't take that one. Don't take that I don't have one anymore. I'm not doing that. I, I could identify with you when you had to wake your family up, but then I never, I was like refusing to use the night bucket, yeah. so I stopped identifying with you there, sorry. There were also the times. I I never <laughs> there were also the times when I was about to throw up and they didn't wake up to unlock the door in time, so I was just like on the floor. Oh, I, mean, I had a bucket no. with me, but you threw up on the floor? No, no, I had a bucket with me, but like oh. I, I was trying to go through the door and it was locked, so I just like got stuck in that the was house. The, I was uh, just locked in the house. That's why I felt yeah, like a hostage. Yeah. I was just locked in the house with diarrhea and vomit. Don't laugh. It's like it's like you say quarantine. Him. Yeah. The only reason I made it through that is because I knew it was only five weeks long. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, all right, yeah, that's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, we'll come back to it. Uh, yeah, I, I'd like it will yeah, come back to do. us for our whole service. It's probably a recurring theme during service. Yes, yeah. it probably is. Yeah. Uh, all right, yeah, no, that's a good uh, segue into the next element of, of sort of uh, the, the change for us. But um, starting with my, could you talk to me about uh, about bucket bathing and what that, that transition was like when you... Um, when you got to your homestead? Um, yeah, so bucket bathing, you basically, you just, you go in this like little stall outside and you take a bucket with you and it's, you fill it up with water and you just kind of splash it on yourself. Um, honestly, that was the easiest transition. I really enjoy bucket bathing though. You really, you conserve water. Yeah. Uh, but would you prefer that over a shower? I just, <laughs> I mean, absolutely not, but we're not comparing. Um, so it was fine. My family heated up the water for me, so it was nice and warm. Um, I'd bring my phone in there, so I'd listen to music. Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I enjoy bucket baths, so. I think something that I just, it was, I mean, the list is seemingly infinite about the things that I would take. I realized that I took for granted so yeah. much, you know. Um, and, but one of the things when it came to bucket bathing in the beginning, well, a couple things. One was just the things in the water. Yeah. So. We take for granted how much when I turn on the tap at home, it's completely clear and there's nothing in it and I can just sort of gulp it right out of the tap. You know, I'm slugging it down. I can just put my mouth on it if I want when I go inside and it doesn't even matter. <laughs> yeah. and, um, but we, at least at the homestay I was at, they had a tank that just collected rainwater from the drains of the side of the house. and. Um, and so you'd get the water, and the first things first, there's just there'd be things in it, and I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm here to, I'm taking this to bathe, but there's dirt in in the water, so <laughs> and so, and in addition, sometimes uh, maybe Tom wants to comment. Uh, sometimes, depending for me, um, the tank if it was really low, uh, there'd be a lot more worms that yeah. come out uh, mm. when the tank is really low rather than when it's really full, and so, um, and so. I think as Tom was telling me, for a while there was, you just didn't notice, you thought it was just sort of the floaties in the water, but 
after a while you'd like you'd notice something was moving like in your water when you were trying to yeah. do your bucket bath and then you try to you try to get it those things are really elusive they don't they don't let you get them and uh but yeah tom do you have do you have anything to say about that no, i just wanted to make sure that that was spoken yeah there were sometimes worms are about water. yeah yeah. I will say there are like a couple moments you get like every once in a while, especially in the beginning where they're like, oh shit moments. You're really in Africa. Right. right and yeah. that was like bucket bathing. I was at my home. So it was like the second night and I was just crouched down and just splashing water on myself. <laughs> <laughs> and you just have these moments. You're like, oh my God, this is really happening. Right. And you know. And you can look up and you can see like the stars as you're like bucket bathing and it's just like such a surreal experience and you feel very, I don't know, very alive, but it's also just crazy. Um, that was one of my oh shit moments, like the second night. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, how about, how about you? How was that transition for you? Uh, to bucket bathing? Yeah. Um, do you bathe? <laughs> yeah, I now I bathe all the time because I have a electric kettle and right. I like the warm baths. Um, oh my god, I um, just when you mentioned the electric kettle part, I for in Cayuga for the longest time I just didn't use warm water because I, I kept telling myself, man, just one more time and I'm going to be used to this and I'm just it's going to be fine. You have to do it when it's sunny out. If you do it at night, you're going to get cold or like especially after it rains. But yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you. Please continue. Um, the bucket bathing, I guess, didn't seem like that much of a transition, but I still definitely shower every time I can. Every time I find out how to shower, I'll sit in there for like 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, the hardest thing for me was the lack of privacy, definitely. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to Cayuga and visit my host family. I feel a little bit bad about it, but I was just thinking about going back to Cayuga. Yeah, I just somebody, have, I have no You just desire. see that same night bucket on the I corner have, street somewhere I have no and you're waiting for me to go back to yeah. Kayunga. Um, yeah. I'd always stay in Catacomb. I, I know, but like still, like, but Catacomb, Catacomb, I just think of Nest Cafe and Spice Water. But you like that stuff now, so. <sighs> I do. <laughs> I do. Um, so, oh, go ahead. Pillatrines are nasty, but those also. The weirdest thing to me is just how natural a lot of this stuff is felt. Like when I get in like a taxi that's packed with people or like, it just, I catch myself now, it, like everything just feels very normal. And then when mm. I think back to like if I told myself four months ago that I was going to feel comfortable doing this stuff. Like I'm surprised how fast I got comfortable with everything. Yeah. I think language training does a good job of... Throwing you like when you it. show up maybe the first day it's not that way but like a weekend two weeks in it feels like the most natural thing mm -hmm. in the world to me yeah yeah, but yeah things that seem like they should be so easy turn out to in the beginning it's yeah. that it's that oh shit moment that my was talking about yeah. where even like for pillatrines it was it's like i wanted to be in and out of there in like 7.3 seconds like yeah. they so by the way could someone like describe like a the pillatrine situation. Uh, it's just like maybe a hole. Know. It's like a really deep hole. Okay. With like a floating. <laughs> so let Tom describe it. With a lot of bugs in coverage. There are a lot of bugs. It's like okay, yeah. So there's a really what did you how did you describe it? a really deep hole? And then they there's like a either like a concrete or some sort of like I don't know. Some of them are dirt like platform floating platform above it yeah. where you 
crouch mm-hmm. and you have to go to the bathroom this like brick sized hole mm-hmm. um and there are bugs yeah that's like probably my least favorite part you have a toilet now, don't you? I do I have a squatty potty me I too have a, I, have a I love it but it's really hard but to shower in there cause it's like it's very slippery you have a shower? No, I have to bathe in my like toilet. My toilet is my drain. That's really sanitary. I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. I'm like scared. It's gonna be one of these days. My toilet and you're not gonna oh and my, my shower. You're not gonna, gonna know until it's no. too late. I will know. Oh, it's gonna overflow. But, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, jinx it. Oh but yeah. So in language tra- in language training and at work I have to use a pit latrine, but at home I have like a squatty body. Actually, doing laundry, I think, was one of the worst things. I agree. I never Still got to this day. It remains yeah. I It remains challenging. Worst. I found a laundry lady, so... Gosh, I need help. Actually, she found me. Oh my yeah, gosh! Just another thing, sort of, to the list of things that we, you know, would take for granted about being able to put all your clothes into a machine and it spins around and, and spits them out in an hour and they're all clean and dry. And now I, I, I get the sense that, because I'm not good at washing my clothes, and so I try to do it, but I get the feeling that my clothes will never really be clean for the next two years. I agree. They just won't. They're still a little crusty whenever yeah, I pull them off the they're line. they're always crusty. And so yeah. I just, oh man, it's not. And sometimes there's just like, uh, there'll be a like a splat of soap that just dried on the yeah. side of my shirt that I forgot to like, I missed. I didn't see it, so I couldn't wash it off. And so. Uh, but also yeah. for that quality, it, it takes an obscene amount of time. Even for that quality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, every time I think it'll only take me an hour, and it it, it takes me three. Yeah, it takes by me the three time hours. I'm done. It's making me really happy realizing that I don't even connect with you guys on this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I mean, and every time my host mom comes and says I do it wrong, and she she like she helps me, and I'm grateful. But sometimes you want to do your laundry in peace. Yeah, so, all the time. Yeah, all the time, yeah, actually. Everyone really comes at me, I'm like, yo, <laughs> yes. either help or don't come at You're me. Right. It's weird how, like, self-conscious I am about washing my clothes. Yes. I'll be washing them a certain way, and someone walks up to me and wants to tell me I'm doing it wrong, and I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> right. I'm doing it right. <laughs> like, yes. And, uh, but yeah, my, my homestay mom has helped me a few times, because she, just about how to, especially, like, uh, methods and how to wash, like, a whole sheet because you have an entire bed sheet in a basin, like a small right. or like I don't bucket understand full of still. water. Yeah. And she's showing me how to like sort of stretch it out and wash the each section. I still don't know how no, to do I don't it. Either. But she showed me and so yeah, hopefully in the future. I gotta go to a dobby for that better. I need to find someone to help me with my bed sheets. <laughs> but I think that's like one of the biggest things I'm struggling with is like uh, so often people tell me I'm doing things wrong. And sometimes I am, but sometimes I'm just doing things differently because I'm doing mm. it the way I learned and the way I grew up. Um, so it's like I'm really trying to work on like gracefully accepting um, their their comments and their advice because sometimes I just feel myself getting really upset mm. and kind of aggressive towards them. So like that's something I'm really trying to work on and like be more graceful with. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining my choosing. <laughs> just like, just yes. being, yeah. I've um, never seen you upset. Well, like every day. every day, yeah. almost every meal I make, I my host brother comments that I'm like burning my food, and yeah. he just like, and I don't know why. It's just these little things get oh, to yeah. you, and I'm like, I never asked you, and like, yeah, no, but, but then, <laughs> it's the it's such a experience where the little things can really build up. Yes. Where just like when it comes to the Mizungu thing. Or, um, or the wash your clothes and someone mm-hmm. telling you that you're doing it wrong. 
uh, it seems like really small things, but it, it strikes me that there could come a day where it's like someone says something and I'm just like, what? And I'm yeah, just, and you I just, blow up. Yeah, yeah. and it so you really have to sort of keep You have to keep that, uh, you know, in check, perhaps. Uh, yeah, that can be. I had a weird experience yesterday. Please. I was kind of tired and I was walking home for an hour and a half because I can't ride photos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an hour and a half? And my bike is broken down. Oh, oh no. Andrew. They won't give me a photo waiver. Um, so I'm so used to people saying bye Mizungu to me and then I stop and I won't say bye to children even. I'll just introduce myself and when they start saying my name then I'll say bye. That's good. Um, there was a lamb that what did it ba? Like they bought it. They bought it. Me. And for what? like a tenth of a second, I was about. I caught myself turning towards the lamb, and I was about to introduce myself because I was so used to buying the zungu. I thought the lamb was about to come. Oh my god! Yeah, that's like no, some that's psyche yeah, breakdown. We've been inside for three weeks. <laughs> I didn't actually do it. You responded to a ghost. I I didn't actually do it, but like. I like caught myself. I was walking and I stopped, and then I didn't actually turn, but I was about to, and then I was oh, like, "I wish, I wish you would have. I wish you would have. Like, would you have said your whole name? How do you introduce yourself to a goat? Uh, well, to like children, I say Sinze Mazungu and Zay Andrew, mm-hmm. so it would have been that. Oh, okay, but great. I didn't actually. Nothing came out of my mouth, but I stopped and I was paused, and I was like, <laughs> I got like your community witnessing you. Yeah, wow, this oh, was he's crazy. He's talking well, to the sheep. <laughs> If I'm crazy, it's their fault. Or they would believe that you could actually talk to animals. Yeah. That could happen too. I mean, aren't, isn't that kind of part of being a Peace Corps volunteer? You become a little bit crazy. You studied animal science. Yeah. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, you're just trying to. Yeah, you're doing a study. Yeah. On that goat to see if it'll respond, I suppose. Yeah. But I just when people talk to me now, I just assume they're calling me Mizungu. Like yeah. it's all like if I'm not if I'm just kind of zoned out. Mm-hmm. It's like my automatic response to people on the street is since I'm assuming. So I had a like, yeah, I had a coming to about this also because people kept calling me Mizungu even when I would introduce myself and it was really getting on my nerves. And then I had to reevaluate and really, everyone just wants to talk to you. Like it's a way of interacting with you and engaging with you. And so now I, I don't know. I'm not as angry about it because I'm like, oh, okay. They just want me to pay attention. So let me walk over and do so. Like but, yeah, okay, I had to flick someone in the year before I had it coming to. And then I was like, okay, I'm going too far. I flicked this stranger in, in the year. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm better. Uh, Tom, do you want to... Um, so... <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, so... Um, could you comment about... Uh, sort of, I know you had sort of a specific kind of religious experience here uh, with religion in your family, such especially, do you want to talk about uh, when you got first taken to church in Cayuga and having to introduce yourself to the congregation and, and things like that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my first Sunday in Cayuga, I went to a um, Protestant service and I was the only foreigner there and definitely got called out halfway through service um, they they said something like oh we have a a, a white visitor here um, and then they asked me to introduce myself so I did in I kind of like like you were saying before I feel like I kind of blacked out and then <laughs> yeah. I like at the end of it I had like introduced myself briefly in Luganda mm-hmm. like the language spoken in the central region so thank goodness our um, teachers had taught us how to introduce ourselves so first that was so, so smart 
Um, yeah, I didn't love that because I, I, I don't know. I felt oh, there was a lot of attention on me instead of on like the pastor or like the message. Didn't you say they said something like, um, we have a visitor of another color. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, the, the guy was like, so I can see we have a visitor of another color here. And they like said it during the sermon and made me stand up. It was like the most uncomfortable thing. It's amazing. But again, like, I guess they meant it in a good way, but it just wasn't in a good way. I was like freaking out. Um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that the, when someone refers to it as Mizunga, they're meaning it in a hostility. Like hostility. Yeah. They're, it's just a, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing, but it's, it's just a word to represent someone that's not from around here. Yeah. And so I've never really, yeah, it's never, I've never felt like anyone's being hostile when they say it. It's just, uh, yeah. But because, it, because we come from the U.S., we kind of, te- I, I initially took it as hostile. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, what? You're calling me a foreigner? Subconsciously, it still feels hostile. Yeah. Like, I, on the surface, or I kind of understand that it's not, but my, like, immediate reaction is... I do, like, most children don't say it in, like, a hostile way, no. but some adults, I feel yeah. like, especially when you're introducing yourself and they refuse to say your name. Yeah. If, I don't know, it just feels hostile, but even though it, maybe it's not. Yeah. But I just think it's socially ex- more acceptable here, whereas I'm not, in my U.S. experience, I'm not used yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very like upfront. In like a way, it's racist, but it's not a negative racism. Yeah, I guess. But it, they it's, don't try to hide yeah. it at all. Right. Like that's like the first thing they're gonna notice about you, and they're gonna make it obvious is that you're white. It, it's definitely something to just more or less, I think, internalize that that it's not something that's necessarily gonna go away, and it's. Um, so I mean, if you you can decide whether to necessarily let it always really like bother you, or um, or just kind of I don't know change your mindset. Yeah, change like your mindset about <laughs> change your mindset about it uh, to because either way you know it's gonna be around for your service and so you just kind of have to. I feel like you can make, if you have a small enough community you can probably change it. Yeah, no, my place. on my street that I live, yeah. the kids and the folks don't call me Mizungo on the street because they see me walking on it all the time and I've introduced myself to everybody. And so the, even the kids, they'll either call me Dominico or Luta. Um, and they, they never, like every once in a while, there's one kid that doesn't know me that calls yeah. me Mizungu. But um, for the most part, if you're in a community long enough, but my community's big enough to where I'll never know everybody. There's, it's way too big Same. to where. Um, but um, this has been really great, uh, but uh, I want to transition to the next sort of section of the of the show where, um, so essentially, <clears throat> excuse me, the the meta theme or the overarching uh, narrative of the show is about Uganda's economic development. So um, I'm happy that we were able to cover um, some of the cultural aspects of when we first got here, but I want to transition to chatting about kind of different variables in regards to development here in Uganda. And I want to start with um, with health, because as I said in the intro, <clears throat> the um, health is a massive variable for so many obvious reasons, but also sometimes unobvious reasons where you just, without being like a healthy individual, you're not able to do anything. And so um, having it allows you to being healthy allows you to be innovative, to take care of your kids, to go to the grocery store, uh, etc., to be able to perform all these tasks. And um, uh, I wanted to start with health um, and regarding sort of our communities and such. And so if I could start with Tom and ask about Leon Tonde specifically, um, 
what are some of the um, uh, those variables that you've been working on. First, if you maybe want to talk about your organization and, um, and what you do there, that'd be great too. Okay, cool. So <laughs> I work with the Organization for Community Empowerment um, in Leon Tonde, and they are an NGO specifically um, aiming to work with like key populations um, and adolescents. So they're, they have a few projects that they're doing. Um, they are, they have like an adolescent like school group project where they um, are teaching adolescents about HIV and then getting them tested for HIV and kind of um, connecting them with services depending on those results. They also have been um, installing water purifiers in schools um, around Leontonde Town Council. And then we have also done a couple like rumps classes, reusable menstrual pad mm -hmm. classes um, while I've been there. Um, yeah, they were doing some good stuff. Um, we're doing a lot of grant applications right now, so stay tuned on what we're gonna do um, later on. Mm -hmm. In regards to like health concerns in Leontonde, um, so I've only been there, well, like two months now. Mm -hmm. But from what I can tell so far, so HIV is definitely a big problem in Leontonde. They are, okay, Leontonde is a big truck stop in between two major cities, Masaka um, and Mbara. And so a lot of times truckers will stay overnight um, on one of the streets there um, before heading on to their destination the next day. And it's like a, uh, there's there's a big like commercial sex work um kind of like uh i don't know what i'm trying to say like uh commercial sex work happening uh on that street mm -hmm. um and people have a lot of misconceptions about hiv and so it's kind of a good it's like an an ideal hotspot for hiv to be transmitted and spread um just with all the the factors there. Could you could you talk about some of the misconceptions people have about HIV? Oh yeah, um, let's see. So I had to teach a class two weeks ago and one of the really common ones was that HIV can be transmitted through sharing clothing, mm -hmm. um, which is not true. Sometimes people believe that it can be spread through like mosquito bites, which also is not true. And um, yeah, those are some, those are two really big ones. Um, some people believe that you have to look unhealthy like before you can like pass it on but even like healthy people can have hiv yeah. uh yeah kissing is another big one kissing uh, is a big one so if you like close mouth kiss you cannot get hiv mm -hmm. and if you're doing open mouth kissing you can only get it if it's like both people are like yeah, sores still, and like bleeding still highly unlikely it's very unlikely yeah and I, I was reading that um that you can have hiv for up to 10 years and never know like actually have symptoms from hiv so sort of going back to what you were talking about about um you know people thinking that you have to look unhealthy in order to to spread it yeah um, that's not true. that's definitely not yeah. true because um, it's in the latency phase can go up to 10 years and yeah it's being spread during that time yeah, yeah it's a really cool virus mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and we could, uh, yeah, we could, these are definitely conversations we, should, we could talk about for quite a long time, but we, we are limited with time, so I want to get to Mai and Andrew as well. You both work at uh, coffee uh, farms, essentially, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. correct? Um, could you, could we start with Mai and then we'll go to Andrew, um, sort of, could you talk to me about what your organization does and how they um, try to promote sort of economic development in your community? 
Yeah, so my org is called Chafe Farmers Coffee, and we're a pretty new org in a very small organization, also in a very small village of like maybe 500 people in the entire village. Um, so what we do is coffee is, it's the biggest cash crop, um, and it's grown by almost every single person in my village. So what we do is we buy at fair trade prices from these farmers um, to try to increase their household income. And then we process the coffee in country and we sell it. And then part of our profits go back into local community projects. So um, we work with really only women. Um, obviously you have to work with men a little bit because they own the property. Um, and they are major uh, decision makers in the household, but our aim is to empower women and children. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so yeah, so we're kind of new, but like, uh, for example, a project we're excited to implement, um, once we raise the funds um, to empower children in the community, um, we're gonna start a piggery project where, um, where we distribute piglets to kids in the community and they're gonna raise the pigs as their own. Uh, we'll breed the pigs and then they can sell more piglets um, to other kids and basically it's all to raise money so they can go to school. Because um, we estimate that like probably 60% of the children in my village don't go to school because their families can't afford school fees. Mm -hmm. So that's a major problem we're facing. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, my community is very, very poor and um, so they're, they're just kind of, they're lacking fees to cover uh, medicine, proper health care, just really basic stuff. Yeah, it's, it can be a lot to ask for families to pay the, the school fees and such. I know in my community, um, it, it costs close to around a million shillings to send a kid to like secondary school. Uh, which is just a, a lot to ask of a family to pay. That's just for one year to for go one to, year, to yeah. secondary school, which is, uh, secondary school is the equivalent to high school, essentially. Um, and that's just, that's a tremendous amount to ask for some families to, to pay. Right, um, and, and to put that in perspective, um, like maybe a villager makes 10,000 shillings a day in my village. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just not, it's not enough to send a kid to... Yeah, which is the equivalent to a little over, uh, well, essentially, maybe a little less than $3, something yeah. like that, yeah. $6. Dollars. Um, yeah, uh, Andrew, do you want to talk about uh, your organization and what they do? Uh, I work with Chivinge Coffee Farmers Cooperative Society. It's like KCFCS or something. Mm -hmm. um, it's a farmer-owned cooperative with roughly 2,000 farms or farmers um, located in Chibinge Sub County in Buko Mansembi district just outside of Masaka. Um, they farm Robusta coffee. Um, mostly they sell it in Uganda and they export some to Europe and they have field staff that goes out and does trainings for the farmers groups and the VSLAs and they help uh, they help start up and facilitate lessons to VSLAs and youth groups, uh, farmers groups. Um, there's staff whose full job is to teach the youth groups mm -hmm. about farming and yeah. um, 
so far it's been pretty slow getting going for me. Um, but the main thing I've been doing so far is just getting to know the community in the office and then also trying to or contacting companies in the US to see if they'd be interested in buying our coffee because we don't send any coffee. How how big is your organization? Like how much of a presence do they have in your community? My organization pretty much is my community, almost. Um, they told me when I first showed up that 90% of the community firms coffee mm-hmm. and the vast majority of those people give their coffee to my organization. There's multiple um, buildings around the community that store the coffee and process it. There's an office that has at least a couple dozen office workers mm-hmm. um, and then field staff also and there's a SACO in the community that my mm-hmm. organization runs. Um, yeah, it's it's weird because people know that if there's a Mizuno in the community they work with Chibinge Coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll hear people saying Chibinge Coffee when I get in a taxi but I never said anything so they just know. Yeah, um, yeah but my organization and my community are almost the same thing. Well, thanks, guys, for uh, touching on uh, sort of what your organizations do. I know that um, we're all pretty new here still, so going into sort of uh, first going into like detailing to each one of our organizations would be a whole podcast in itself. Um, and so, but thanks for sharing sort of what your organizations do. I want to um, transition to sort of the end of the show, where I feel like for the first. Um, the first podcast that we do wouldn't be complete if we didn't sort of spend a moment to talk about our cohort in general. Um, and so uh, we'll start with Andrew this time. If you could uh, sort of comment on just what it's been like to have this experience with the, um, with the 46 others that we, we came with um, and, and how that's affected you. Okay. Um, well, we started off in Missouri for three weeks all together kind of like summer camp for three weeks mm-hmm. like it didn't really feel like we were in a foreign country mm-hmm. too much just a little bit just like the food was a little bit different um, and maybe we'd leave for like an hour at a time or two hours at a time and come back once a week or something um, I guess it I think it's made it a lot easier having a bunch of other people Right, I just mean, like, could you comment on, like, the people specifically, like, the, uh, the, the folks that we came here with? Yeah, yeah, like, because, oh, okay. yeah, the, the group in itself has been pretty great, and I just, uh, I want to talk about them for a moment okay. uh, before, we, before we wrap up. Well, I'm, what do you want me to say? I'm confused. Oh. <laughs> um, what do you just, want me to talk about? Just, oh, my uh, God. Yeah, just, uh, you know, um, how those people so have, you love us, have, have, yeah, <laughs> how those people, yeah, how it's been to experience this with such a diverse and interesting uh, group of folks. I mean, they've... As Tom, me and Tom were talking about earlier, the cohort that we have really, uh, we think, represents sort of the diversity of America. Yeah. Um, we come from all, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of us have studied different things, and we bring mm. different elements to the table in regards okay. to our work and such. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Andrew just says all this to us in real life, so he's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm one of two people here who actually have like a majority agriculture background, me and Emmett. Yep. And the rest of the AED people were all like economics or business, I think. Yep. Um, there might have been, 
Right. Media and, and informatics. What yeah. is it? It's kind of like computer science stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then we have the health people, the education people come a different time of year. But yeah, just yeah. How, tell me, tell me how much you love Emmett. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what you were trying to get at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to get the yeah, bromance. Yeah. Emmett was my roommate. It was already. Um, if so. you could rank Emmett on a scale of one to ten for being a good roommate, what would you what would you rank him as? I'd give him a ten. You give him a ten? Yeah. I would. Wow. Him, yeah, that's really good. That's so good. I mean, I love Emmett too, but a ten that's that's pretty that's pretty good. You hear that, Emmett? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we we pushed our beds together. It was just oh good. Yeah, were you were issue. you more like big spoon or little spoon on that scenario? Or you alternate? Wow. <laughs> was this hour by hour or night by night? Did you alternate? Night by night. night, by night. Oh. Yeah, no, that's more of a set schedule for sure. Yeah. Okay, Tom, could you comment on that? <laughs> Andrew did co- such a great job. Herschel and I didn't push our beds together. Yeah. Oh my god, I love Herschel. Herschel's the boss. Ten out of ten. Also. Um, yeah, so we've been talking before about, like, the diversity of our group, um, and I love them all. Do you remember so, when what? Herschel was so stressed about Mazzardi stuff that we were oh, doing? Oh, yeah. He it was, was like, yeah. Herschel has, <laughs> Herschel would wake up at 5 a.m. to study before sessions. <laughs> yeah, he was Real, one of the hardest people. Like, yeah. To study what? Like, I know. Like all the, <laughs> That's what we were wondering. He would read through all our Peace Corps material, and he would uh, check out the slides and stuff. Good yeah. volunteer. He's... Yeah, I haven't looked at my flash drive. And when we did, when we <laughs> did our, if you have one, I haven't taken the flash drive out of the package. Oh no! <sighs> okay, what, what just keep going. Even I did. Just, I don't. I didn't even have a computer, and I had the flash drive. Keep going on that one. So it, I, anyway, I was gonna say Herschel and I did our facilitation the other day, and he was so like uh, systematic with the way he did it, mm-hmm. and like it was so organized. It was really good. Yeah. Um, Didn't he also like work out? Oh yeah, he works During, out in the morning too. Yeah, he wor- and so he worked out and he studied before our classes yeah, yeah. in the morning. He was like, we're yeah. in the room or something? Yeah, yeah. just that guy's the body of a stallion. Right, that's how you become just... like a billionaire one day. Those yeah. are two of the traits. He's doing everything right. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, I miss yeah. him. Nice job, Herschel. I saw him today. I still miss him. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, let's see. I don't want to take too much time. Um, I like how in our cohort there's a lot of Americans that weren't born in America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, and I also like we were discussing earlier about group experiences and how how that brings people together yeah, so well and I think it's been really nice to have um, all like all 46 of us going through similar things and I don't know it's like I can see you guys after like two weeks and like hug you and you guys just understand like you just yeah. know because you're going through <laughs> the same stuff and like yeah. so that's definitely been pretty integral to my first three months mm-hmm. or four months in Uganda, for sure. Yeah. My, how about you? My favorite thing is that, like, everyone is just such a personality and so unique in their own way. And you can sit down with anybody and learn something from them or just, like, just enjoy their story because everyone is coming from such different backgrounds and different ages. And... um Everyone's just so unique and they have like so many goals other than just their their projects here. You know, people are writing books, children's stories. Here's Dom making a podcast, um, blogs. It's just like everyone's creators and artists in their own sense. And I just feel like I learned so much from everybody. And I love hanging out with people that like make me want to be better. And I feel like everyone does that for me. Oh, wow. 
Thanks, yes. Mike. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm glad I went first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, well, thank you guys all so much for for commenting on that and, and sharing about that. Um, I so guess the, now that I know what you were asking. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll just if we're talking about. Yeah. I don't even know what we're talking about hardly, but like. Um, <laughs> um, I'll just say. I that, gave you a hint. Just say you love us. Okay, just let, we're running out of time. Just let him... Let okay, him, uh, yeah, I'll just say that it's helped a lot having... It's helped having all of the volunteers, but having... I guess just having a girlfriend, Virginia, here has helped. Oh, more. man. Oh, dude, man, he just... Oh, just oh, wait. My heart just heart. grew there. That, that's, that's he waited till the very end to <laughs> talk about this. Um, Good heavens. Yeah, that's helped more. Yeah. Than, because, I don't know, just having someone to talk to that's... You're closer with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man. God damn it, Andrew. <laughs> Those, you had to bring all that out at the end. We should have talked about this earlier. This is a whole new we should have just a whole new show. New relationships in Uganda. Yeah, the next episode. Yeah, oh, oh, there is. It, no. we, we only got about eight minutes left. Okay. But, uh, but yeah. Man. Could, well, say something else. You know, talk to us. How was that when you... Um, sorry, I'm sort of demanding this of you. Um, but... Uh, yeah, what was, how did you guys necessarily uh, start to get in talking and stuff, and, and how did that sort of little, uh, little flower bloom there, you know? That Mazzardi. Yeah. Um, Mazzardi does a lot of things to people. <laughs> yeah. um, so. Let me think of this. Um, it was yoga. I think it was yoga. Were you doing yoga? You were doing yoga, because uh, you always did it at Mazzardi. She you were, first asked... You were like a swan were, out in the field, like, during the day. There and were you were just like, sort of... You'd be doing, like, whole, like... They're not backflips, but they look like backflips. But it's like, like a yoga backflip. <laughs> it's crazy. Dude, like... I think we need to just, like, go back. Yeah, when you do that whole, like... It's the bridge thing. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? Okay. It, that's a backflip to me. That's the equivalent. That. No, my oh, back no. is not... Do you know my back? <laughs> it's bad, dude. <laughs> like, especially my lower lumbar support is lower always... Lower lumbar support? <laughs> okay. It's healthy for your I know it is. I just, I'm just telling you my back is... healthy for my back. My back is extremely tight. Okay, if you can't do that when you're in your 20s, then... No, I haven't been able to do that ever, so... <laughs> I, just, uh, I feel like that's got to be, like, a mortality risk or something. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, so we've got it. We've, we've understood that, that Virginia is an absolutely stellar human being, and that, um, yeah, I wish you both very much the best. Um, but we, we have to move on to the last, um, uh, the last question I want to ask everyone before we wrap up, um, which is, and we'll start with mine, we'll go uh, Andrew, then Tom... Um, if you could go back and find yourself at the age of 16, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, if it was just a couple bullet points of advice you would give yourself, uh, what, what would it be? Um, at 16, I was, I think I had a really big ego at 16. I think I was kind of um, spoiled. Um, I thought soccer was my life. I think I thought I was super cool. Um, and I think I would just say, like, expand your experiences and um, expand your interests. Because, like, looking back, I did soccer so much. I spent so many hours every day and every week. Um, and if I could redo everything, I would I would have played, like, 10 sports and 10 instruments and... 
um, just been like mediocre at everything, um, I think, because I think that makes you a more um, diverse, interesting person maybe. Um, so I don't know. I guess I would, I would, I would just have a little chat with myself and, and say to like, go do more things and just expand your view. And you're not that cool. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. And you're spoiled. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, Andrew. Um, when I was 16, I, my hobby was just lifting weights. I just lifted, like, I just worked out. <laughs> we would have been friends. All the time. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was very shy and introverted, and I just lifted weights. Um, that was pretty much my life when I was 16. But I I don't know if there's that much advice I'd give myself other than just, like, because I did a good job back then of when I really liked something, I get really into it. It was just, I was very, uh, what would you say? Like, I was just focused on one thing, but. Kind of what my was saying. Yeah, she was that with soccer. Um, I don't really think that's a problem. Is I would say to relax, because like later on, um, at that point, this wasn't the case, but three or four years down the road, I had like a quarter life crisis a little bit, and started wearing fanny packs and stuff. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say just like do basically at that age, just relax and just find things you love doing, and just like dedicate a lot of time to those. But make and sure then, it's, it's like five things you love doing. And uh, just one. I don't even think that I wouldn't force it, mm-hmm. like, but like it's okay if that stops, if you stop liking that thing and you just transition to something else, it's just life experience, it's just like, I don't like feel like I like wasted time putting effort into one thing, like it converts to other things if you, getting good at one thing helps with, Yeah. Like, there's a quote, it builds like, character I'm, too, I think it's a Musashi quote, um, or it's like if you know the way broadly you'll all things something like if you basically if you um, get good at one thing it helps you with everything mm-hmm. like yeah. just that process but I just would say just do what you love and relax because a lot of people freak out when they get to college and, yeah the uh, relaxed people, part yeah, people I stress out about their lives yeah. so much and most of it's stupid it just yeah. doesn't matter that much most give a fuck about fewer things yeah <laughs> dude that's the poster that yeah. we need right there um, yeah, sorry, um, Tom, we're, yeah, we got a minute and a half left. Do go, you think I can go do ahead. it? Yeah, okay. please, go ahead. Um, so I would take 16-year-old Thomas for a cappuccino, and I would tell him <laughs> during that coffee session that... Um, would it be a double or a single? Oh, we're going double, double both of us. Yeah, you need to have a talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And be up late for this one. I would tell him that um, he, as he's going on with his life and his future, he should do um, more things for himself, um, and maybe ma- when he's making major life decisions, make those about like himself and what he wants to do. Um, and then I would also tell him that uh, I don't know exactly how to phrase this, but like uh, his temperament and the way he interacts with people, even though sometimes is looked down upon, I. Th- I think it's awesome and probably no one has told him that at 16 year old, but he should keep it going. And I don't know, yeah, dude, you're doing great, keep going. You'll see me soon. 
That's what I would say. Oh, you're kind to well, yourself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what 16 on top of Steve. Yeah, he well, needs kindness. Yeah, thank you all so much for sharing. Uh, yeah, I love you all so much. And um, uh, yeah, this has been really great. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Woo, of course. Woo, woo. Thanks See you next time. Us. Andrew? Say bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I think it also relates to economics because I think both of them are really studying and observing human behavior. Yeah. So they coincide in those ways. Um, Imani, could you talk to me about sort of your journey to this point and uh, your interests and such before we get get going? Um, I think for me, I think I had different views from being born on the island mm-hmm. and the struggles we had to face growing up. Um, it kind of led me to the career of wanting to do international work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like helping people and being involved in making health decisions and giving access to people with health care. So it led me here. Mm-hmm. Well, fantastic. Thank you again for both being here. Um, uh, so I really want to dive into issues relating to like women's rights and sort of that element in regards to Uganda's development. Um, could you guys first talk to me about your, uh, your organizations and what you do there? Mm. So my organization is called Chamagana Community Development Organization, mm-hmm. a mouthful, short for KCDO. Um, my org works with vulnerable children and vulnerable families in the Luengo district. Mm-hmm. Um, we help families with parenting classes every Saturday. We find families who need help with saving and budgeting. We find VSLAs for them to start savings. We also support kids, um, orphan and vulnerable children who have HIV or not with school fees so they can attend school. We help them with school supplies um, and motivating the kids to do better in life. Yeah, no, that's your organization's model seems to, I think, capture a lot of, a lot better than what some organizations try to do, because it sounds like it's, it's really propping up students in many ways, and mm-hmm. not just in one, and that's, that's something that's just so, I think, um, absent in a lot of projects that people do. They think that if you sort of turn the dial uh, to just a certain way, or if you invest in, in a very specific Mm-hmm. Uh, circumstance that you can um, that you can transform communities or even people's lives but it's not just one thing for someone to develop they need you know nutrition and the financial literacy transportation healthcare, yeah. all these different things and so it's super cool yeah I think that's one of the things I admire about my org um, they know that youth are the most important people in their society but the youth can't really go far if their family doesn't have a stable place to be so it's about working with both health and the kids to get where they need to be and also helping the families improve their nutrition their livelihood and making sure they can sustain for their family yeah uh, banking off the comment you made about um, the structure of the family Mm -hmm. one of the town council folks that I spoke to in the first couple weeks I was here talked to me about how one of the biggest issues at least in Chinooni in my community is the lack of family structure mm-hmm. and such. And so I think sometimes that also gets overlooked in regards to children's yeah. development as well. And in development in general, like especially gender-based violence and things like that that takes place. And in the lack of say that, that women sometimes have in their own households. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Rachel, do you want to talk to me about your organization and what you do? Sure. So my org seems pretty similar. Um, we also sponsor orphans and vulnerable children. Um, we, we have one child per household that we directly sponsor. And then we have their parents of those households kind of form groups to do um, development 
things as well as um, support each other. So a lot of the development tasks they embark on are things such as creating dish racks or pit latrines or just keeping a clean house. Mm -hmm. And then after they, they have a couple of different stages after the first stage, so they've been together working for about a year, year and a half, they then are able to start savings together as a VSLA, um, potentially are able to create additional IGAs. And then after the third stage, they're expected to be able to be um, completely independent and not needing a sponsorship. And another thing that my org does to help get them to that stage is they teach them how to actually be good coffee and banana farmers. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big cash crops in in the Chotera district. And a lot of these families are growing things such as corn or beans, which will get you virtually no money because that's what they've been growing their whole lives because that's what their parents grew their whole lives. So instead, we're saying, hey, actually, if you grow these other things um, and we'll teach you how to grow these other things, you'll be able to afford school fees. You'll be able to buy the food that you can't grow yourself and you'll be able to be much better off. Yeah. What does it look like? when you're trying to get people to pivot away from maybe the things that uh, their community has been doing for so long, um, how do you get people to you know, maneuver out of that and maybe onto things that are maybe like a more productive thing to grow or something like that? Um, it, you kind of have to make sure that they have buy-in into the situation. So in terms of what to grow, you ha- what my org does is they show cost-benefit analysis, basically, and explain, like, if you are continuing to grow this, this is how much money you'll make Mm -hmm. in the end. And that actually could potentially leave you poorer than you are today. Versus if you grow this other thing and we'll help you get there, um, you could be making actual money. Yeah. So according to... um the United Nations Population Fund, um, which most of uh, all the stats I cite on this episode will mainly come from uh, from that paper. Um, they cited that, or, or they produced in the paper that um, about 75% of, of women do I- informal work here in Uganda. So this, this affects their lives in many ways, um, keeping them from obtaining proper wages or, or workplace rights and things of that nature. In your community, is most of the agriculture work done by uh, women, or is, or is there sort of a mix there? Um, from what I've seen, most of the agricultural work is done by the women. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is this, uh, are they, going back just to some of the things we were talking about in regards to households, um, is, I guess what I'm trying to say is oftentimes in my community, um, the gals are doing a lot of the work in the fields and such, and the guys are gone for days on end or, or even weeks maybe to mm-hmm. go to Kampala or Masaka or the bigger cities. Um, and so they're absent a lot of the time, um, not because they necessarily want to be, but because that's sort of what their uh, situation is. They're going to find opportunity. Do you find that to be sort of a similar thing um, in your community? Honestly, I'm not really sure. So the, the, 
I'm in a town and most of the the people who we work with are out in the villages. So I've been to a couple of the meetings and it was predominantly female. I'm not sure where the males were. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who come into our office, I'd say it's maybe 50-50 female male. Yeah. But I'm not really sure what people do yeah. the rest of the time. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, uh, after reading the, um, the United Nations Population Fund, um, I wanted to cite sort of a few disadvantages that they talk about in the paper that, that women have here in Uganda. Um, and I'm just going to list them here. And uh, we'll start with Imani, if you could talk about how any of these variables correlate a lot with your work or what you do at your organization. And um, so I'll just list them here. One is, um, so basically women lack access to education, healthcare, property rights, reproductive rights, employment opportunities. There's also gender-based violence that's, uh, that's pretty high here, forced marriage, and they lack um, political participation as well in the political system. Um, do any, I know I sort of listed a lot there. Uh, do any of those variables sort of uh, ring home for some of the work that you're doing? Um, yes. Um, I think the first one for me would be education. Mm -hmm. um, I've been in the field of quite a lot, and we would do some of these programs where we explain certain things. And when it comes down to like signing paperwork or even understanding or even like reading the paperwork, we have them. Um, out of probably 100 people who show up, probably only 30 people could write their names. Mm. Um, and then sometimes even their children are the only ones they look up to their children to help them even just how to spell their yeah. names or write their names so it's just like oh lord this is what I'm going to get myself into <laughs> but um, and then also sometimes you see that when it comes to like school fees they tend to send the boys to school and let the girls stay home yeah um, I think for me it's kind of more, since I'm so rural and um, people in my village are really, really poor, they can't even afford to even send their kids to um, school. Mm -hmm. um, they just have to start working, start digging, Yeah. trying to find means. It, it reminds me of um, the health center that I'm at currently. Um, there's a big problem with just documentation in regards to when people show up. They have to... Uh, you know, as like when you think about when you go to the doctor back in the states or something, you know they give you a form or whatever, and you have to fill out your address and your mm -hmm. name and and your insurance and things like that. Um, and there's a similar process here, not in the sense that, uh, to my knowledge, at least from the documents I've seen, people aren't listing you know their insurance providers or things like that. But they're there to get more or less free government assistance. Um, but they, you know, the majority, I mean, over 90% is all women because they're coming to vaccinate their children. Mm -hmm. And we try to create different incentives to have them bring their husbands and so the husbands are involved. Um, like we give women that come with their husbands get priority in the sense that they get vaccinations first, essentially. Wow. If you bring your husband, then your vaccination card gets put at the top of the pile. And so uh, you can be in and out within you know 20 minutes or half an hour rather than four hours or something so but what, what I wanted to mention was is that most of these gals don't they don't know how to write the date like on the on the paper and so I was I was asking one of the um, health service workers I said could we just try to train or like do teachings on on how to fill these out 
And she literally looked at me and just said, like, it, it wouldn't be worth it. Like, you just, because we get probably close to 100 gals every, every Wednesday mm -hmm. show up. And they all show up at the same time, about 9, 10 in the morning, mm -hmm. to get their children vaccinated. And, um, and yeah, so we have a stack of 100 of these cards, and we have to first fill out um, what vaccinations they're getting and the dates on the card, and then we transfer these into a larger book that we have. And then after that, we tally every vaccine they get. And we have to do this for every single person that comes in. And needless to say, it's a tiresome and sort of just arduous process throughout mm -hmm. the whole thing and the lack of being literate uh, or, or the, the, the extent that people are illiterate is just it's, it makes it even just like getting a simple like going and getting a measles vaccine mm. one vaccine on a Wednesday it makes it really really difficult for people um, and I think this um, speaks also to the more of the positive externalities that come with um, getting education because I was reading recently someone uh, man where was it um, it was in um, uh, one of my econ books back home and this guy he was an economist from George Mason I think mm -hmm. and he was talking about how uh, education is mainly a it's a positive externality but the externality is mainly felt he said it's hardly external in the sense that he's like more education is mainly benefited by increased wages for people who have higher education. Mm -hmm. But I'm reading this and thinking, that's just not true though. Like there's massive positive externalities in so many ways if someone can read and write. The women could actually show up and write their own name and be able to write the date of birth for their own child if they actually had education to do it. And I'm like, just, like, and that's a small thing. Like, imagine what they could do if they actually, if they knew how to read and write all the extra things and all that extra opportunity it would create. And I was just reading this the other day, and I was like, I was like, clearly he he must be referring to, I don't know, um, maybe maybe he's making assumptions about lots of things, but I don't know. I just totally disagreed when he said the positive externalities of education are hardly external; they're more felt by increased wages for the individual. I was just I was baffled by that. But anyway, so Rachel, did you have anything to say about Um, that? I think all of them just kind of ring true and they compound on each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's very true. Um could you um sort of get more specific about maybe future projects that you're trying to work on in the future? Um, I'm definitely going to try to work with the Dreams Initiative and then a lot of just work in schools to be doing youth groups in terms of anything from budgeting to basic business skills to creating IGAs, mm -hmm. um, just setting goals and kind of just encouraging girls. A lot of the time it's really hard for girls here because they don't necessarily have someone in their family to look up to. Um, they don't necessarily have someone who's been through school before and it can be hard and I believe that the teenage pregnancy rate in Uganda is close to 25% yeah so why keep going when it's really hard and you're being harassed and people keep doubting your ability you know there's just easy ways out um, but I think it's it'll be really really cool to see 
what girls can do once they're encouraged and empowered um, and able to just stand on their own two feet. Yeah, uh, citing what you just, that, that stat was cited in the paper about, it says 25% of girls between the ages of 15 and 19 have already started having children. Um, in addition, um, the just a couple more stats here. Uh, for maternal deaths, it's uh, 438 women out of every uh, 1,000 um, pass away as a result of maternal deaths. Um, and in addition, the World Bank estimated that for every one year of, of education in primary school, a woman's uh, income increases 10 to 20 percent just as a result of getting one extra year for every year that they are in school. So it's there, there's a big culture aspect, I think, too, because especially for just like motivation and like that they can do it is just a really big thing. Um, and because, you know, when I look around, um, there's just, it goes back to sort of that, that old idea of just gender roles that you, and when you grow up, you're going to, you know, peel the matoke, or you're going to sweep, or you're going to wash and cook and clean and things like that. And this kind of stuff, at least in my community, is, is seems really evident. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know how, you know, when I, when I got here, I think I had this naive uh, thought that culture was something that could be changed, you know. But I just didn't think about exactly how hard that is and it sounds incredibly naive but it's you don't really change it by one person or even in a year or a decade or something it's something that is a really long process yeah going back to the peeling matoke even if you are a successful woman and are a teacher or something you're still expected to be the one who peels the matoke and takes care of the child when you get home yeah. So even when you try and break out of those roles, it doesn't necessarily break out of the roles. It might reconfigure them a little bit, but you're still stuck in that role. Like yeah. for example, one my um homestay sister, she went to school, she got an education, she was working, then she got married and had a kid and now she stays at home with the kid and cooks. Yeah. I think your wifely duties is more important than your successful um, professional profession yeah. here. Um, I think you can achieve the greatest that one person can achieve, but I feel like people are always going to talk if you're not doing what a wife is supposed to be doing here. Still yeah. Yeah. Going um, back to what you were saying about, you know, about a fourth of women between the ages of 15 and 19 have already started having children, this also increases women's likelihood that they'll uh, obtain HIV and such as well. And um, just, um, so I've been doing a few HIV classes and it's amazing to me the extent that people are ready to teach people about square roots and how to find Indonesia on a map, but which, which, in all likelihood, they probably won't need to know in most of their, you know, um, professional lives. Mm -hmm. And, but yet we're so reluctant to 
to teach people about sex ed and about HIV and things like that. And this doesn't just go for Uganda though. This is even back in the States. Like it's a really still taboo subject that people don't want to necessarily talk about. There are states that don't even mandate that there be you know, sex ed laws um, or, or that sex ed is required in those states. And, um, and, but the extent that like for the HIV sessions I've done, the students are so excited about it and they're you know and yeah they they laugh for i have a um a a wooden penis that i do condo demonstrations on and when i'm sort of just flailing that thing about you know talking to kids they they tend to get a good laugh out of that but um and the first half of every condom demonstration is just met with uproarious laughter throughout the throughout but um but and then Afterwards, they are seem so appreciative of that someone is uh, yeah that they get to talk about this kind of subject because they're all interested. Yeah. They're like I've only done secondary school uh, students, so they're like high schoolers, and they're so into it because they, no one's ever talked to them about it. Yeah. Um, and there's some obvious, really big misconceptions that could easily be sort of you know debunked for them if if they just have the space to ask the question. Yeah, I was kind of hit with this last time I was here. Um, we were doing a sex ed talk, and we were asking. We had some Ugandan university students who were like kind of counterparting us, and some of them had never seen how to use a condom yeah. or a condom demonstration or what a condom was. Mm -hmm. We're like, all right, so we'll start here, but that's a just wild in concept that you can get till you're 25 and have never understood how a condom works or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then also they were telling us that one of the reasons why people are kind of ignorant to everything in terms of sex ed is because it's very taboo for parents to talk to their children about it. So back home in America, your parents usually sit you down, give you a talk, kind of explain things. But in Ugandan culture, that's that's pretty taboo. So the parents don't talk to them, and then the schools don't talk to them. So nobody gives anybody any information. Yeah. That doesn't mean that people aren't doing anything. It just means that people are extremely uninformed about what's happening, which leads to extremely high HIV rates and extremely high, um, like, like child teenage pregnancy rates. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have anything you wanted to comment on that? Um, I think for me, when I uh, was doing my needs assessment to see what schools I was going to be working in, um, I asked my secondary school and the technical college that I'm going to be working on to like write down questions that they would want to learn about and teach on. And most of the papers I think I got was about sex, marriage, and dating. Like they wanted to know, to learn about sex, and they wanted to know about marriage, they wanted to know about dating. So. Um, they were like really eager to learn about sets like what is it like you know what yeah. comes along with it so I think it's kind of my responsibility to actually teach them something yeah. um, so I'm actually very eager to well, yeah and, and the, the lines are just they're blurred for them I think on what constitutes what and so at least in the classes I've been teaching a lot of the common questions are about what actually um, uh, classifies as sex and what like they were talking to me about like you know what what does it mean to have like anal sex like what is that <laughs> yeah. what does that actually mean and so I have to sort of 
talk about it and it's like they um but yeah the lines are blurred like what is because another one was a common one when i ask about hiv is they don't it's unlikely that you'll get hiv through oral sex but mm -hmm. it still can totally happen and but basically unanimously across the the board they no one thought you could get hiv through oral sex and i was um, and this is just a an easy fix you can talk about it and have a lesson about it and you can really you know completely change these kids lives if they yeah if, and it's just about information the majority of any bad decisions that we make is normally based on just a lack of having the right information and and the lack of information not to mention just with sex ed but in Uganda that that's would be another interesting topic to talk on that's a little off base from what I want to cover today but it's still interesting about um, the the sheer amount that people just don't know yeah. what yeah. is happening and I'm referring specifically to like markets and prices and even sex ed they just it's very like, ignorant about things here well, yeah they, they they do what like the the person next to them is mm -hmm. doing and so some folks I've talked to even have this have the idea that like I'm gonna cut prices so I can sell more because if I sell more that's what's good mm -hmm. it's not necessarily about having the right price to where I'm making a profit mm -hmm. as long as I'm selling that's what's good and and there, there's just a, a whole host of you know obviously problems with that mindset but um, but yeah the lack of information is stunning because here you just don't have anything but when you think about a farmer back in the states that's sitting on his or her big john deere tractor browsing crop prices on their ipad mm -hmm. all doing this while sitting down on a piece of equipment that's so fantastic that can harvest everything that they're doing in hours you know and what would take months for a bunch of uh, ugandans to do um, is just the, the productivity differences there are just staggering yeah. but uh, but yeah, did you have anything to comment on that, Rich? It's it's definitely been one of my ch big challenges that I've been here, just trying to overcome the lack of information sharing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are there any um, folks uh, at your organizations or in your communities that you've sort of gotten uh, to know that have really inspired you in any way, like sort of... Um, Especially, I, I guess I want to focus more on, uh, like when you're teaching, mm -hmm. for me, there are several uh, students that stand out immediately mm -hmm. about, I, I see them and I see, you know, their work and what they're producing and, and it's really, they just seem really, really bright. Mm -hmm. um, and have you had that experience at your... Um, well, I officially start teaching in my schools next week, so oh, okay. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, yeah. So, not necessarily yet. Yeah. There's this, uh, there's this young woman named Gloria who is in the equivalent of the seventh grade. She's in, she's in P7, but, um, but yeah, she's young for her age, but that, that sort of demonstrates uh, sort of the progression and how smart she is. So mm -hmm. she, she looks like the youngest person in the P7 class, but she's going to graduate this year and go to secondary school. And, um, and so... Um, but after class, she came up to me and she was just like, and she was just talking to me about how she wants to, she has, there was just this passion in her eyes about like, I want to know, like, when are, when are you coming to teach the next lesson? And, 
it's it's this sort of like motivation that I think is just so vital because when people it's like she has that hope you know mm -hmm. and hope is just man I never have realized how how important that sort of element is in in our lives but um I think for a lot of gals um yeah and and guys too here there's just instilling that sense that your future is actually has potential in it, I think is a really important thing to do in schools because uh, it's, it's a lot and the amount of disadvantages that folks face as they grow up, you know, outweighs anything that I ever really thought of ever growing up. Um, do, you, do you have anything to, to mention about, about some of the, just the disadvantages that you've witnessed that you never would have crossed your mind growing up in the, in the States? Um, as in for here, um, yeah. I think when I started to talk, to like get a lifestyle of how the kids' lifestyle here is, like with my org, you know, um, when I was interviewing for nutrition, you know, the parents were saying like, yeah, they have to dig before they go to school in the morning. You know, I'm just like, dig before they go to school? You're like, what time <laughs> yeah, you the, get up? Like, the, <laughs> like, no, it's the, um, oh, I, please continue. Yeah, like, it's just, I mean, I feel like we have a, a greater advantage to them but like I feel like their genes are the same as equal as ours are but they just have to work hard like dig before you go to school then come home to make sure you do all your you know your chores you have to be like when do you have time to even do your homework like 11 o'clock at night like yeah not to mention just the um the extent that even light plays plays a role here I mean you never think about this growing up in the states but you know there's a, some students you have to ask the question, you know, um, you know, do you have a flashlight or do, do you have light when you go home so mm -hmm. you can do your, excuse me, uh, so you can do your homework right. and your studies and such. Um, yeah, questions that I never would have had to ask anyone, it seems, back in the, in the States, uh, you have to ask. And I'm just not used to asking those questions. But um, also going off your, uh, the chores thing, um, man, you're, at least in my community, it seems like the, the women are taught at such a young age, yeah, about the, the chores and the, mm -hmm. you wake up, it's like six or 6.30 in the morning and little girls are out sweeping, they first sweep and it's, you're not sweeping a sidewalk, they're sweeping the dirt yeah. and just sort of the, that area next to their... Sweep the dirt for the dirt. Yes, yeah, so yep. they're sweeping dirt and they're, um, they're washing dishes, they're, they're washing clothes, um, they're starting the fires, they're chopping the wood. wood. Uh, yeah, always chopping wood. Uh, that's like... Fetching the water, like, yeah. you know... Mopping the house. Yeah. And then, you know, we talk about, like, how far they have to walk to school, too. I think I was yeah. walking to town one day, and um, my counterpart points out to this girl, he's like, you see how far she has to walk? Like, she walks, like, three kilometers just to go to school, or, like, four yeah. kilometers just to go to school. And... I, I get the sense, I don't have anything, any empirical uh, data to back this up, but I, it's like, it's something I'd love to look into more. I think that public, in regards to public infrastructure, um, public transit is one of the most undervalued uh, elements in any country really, you know, except for maybe some of the countries that really focus on it, like, like Australia or Sweden. Um, but... Um, the sheer amount that, that children have to walk, and they, they, they walk this far, and then they end up getting to school hungry, 
and some of the schools don't always feed them or mm-hmm. at least feed them uh, you know on time and so you you be they begin their day with this you know with this obstacle and so yeah it goes back to maybe just the encouragement part I just I don't have the answers for mm-hmm. this it's just how it goes and um, but yeah but the transportation thing is really really hard um, I don't I don't know what to say about that other than I wish there was more of it I wish it was easier to get around as we've talked about before you can't really talk about transportation in the sense of distance you have to talk about it in the sense of time so because getting 10 kilometers could take several hours and yeah. so you just have to communicate like when we're talking about meeting each other places or going somewhere you have mm-hmm. to talk about how much time it takes not really the the distance from there yeah yeah but it was something i found really really funny just adjusting here because you're like oh okay i'm 20 miles from something i'll be there half an hour and an hour and a half later you're still on the same taxi not there yet you're oh, like yeah. all yeah. right so vastly need to readjust what half an hour on the road is um, yeah yeah <laughs> and with sometimes you'll you'll be like half full and you think they're going and then they'll turn around and go all the way back up the street uh, again to to, to try to get some more people yeah yeah they definitely want to pack as many people in there as possible um my record's 25. 25. 25 or 14 <laughs> seater. That's good. That's good. Um, oh, I had more than you. Really? I had 28. Get it. What? It was the most <laughs> uncomfortable ride I had. Like, yeah. I think catching taxis for me is the hardest. I live on the main road, so like, by the time, it takes like about like six taxis to go by to like find and get one because of how full they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, thank you both so much for uh, taking the time to sit down and chat with me. Um, to uh, end the show, I always like to ask this question, at least I want to start always asking it. Uh, I asked it on the last one, but we'll start with Imani. If you could rewind uh, to when you were 16 years old, given what you've experienced now, what are, are a few pieces of advice that you'd, you'd give yourself? When I was 16? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I think one thing would be never give up on yourself. I think I came from a very hardship background, mm-hmm. and when I was younger, I didn't have anybody who really believed in me or supported me. So I mm-hmm. think it would be always believing in yourself when I was not like, you can do anything you put your mind to. Mm-hmm. So, be one thing. Rich? I'd agree with that completely. Um, Also, I'd say push yourself and just live life instead of just try and live what you think people want from you. Just live what you want from you. So, and then my standard advice to everybody always is make good choices or come back with a good story. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect, perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, thank you both again so much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, thank Tom. Thank you. Chalunji. <laughs>